Well, why don't we begin with a word of prayer? The Lord be with you. And also with you. God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day and the opportunity to join together around your word. Help to open the words of Jesus here in his teaching to be a light to our own hearts and to our own ways, that his will might become ours and that we might continue our growth as disciples through learning and through love. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, our teacher. Amen. So as we pick up here um, in the in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is just to flip through for context, right? So if you look at how Matthew sets up his gospel here, um, we begin with where we started. We have this genealogy of Jesus, and of course, then it goes into the Matthew version of the beginning of Jesus' life, moves uh you know, through all those kind of steps that Matthew wants to show us, that link between Jesus and the, and the prophets, Jesus and the people of God, who he is the Messiah of. We sort of fast forward then X number of years until Jesus begins his formal ministry, um, which happens after his baptism. One of the, one of the things we skipped over, um, only somewhat intentionally, I think, was in chapter 4. Um, and it's, it's familiar to us, and maybe that's the reason we kind of breeze past it, but just for reference so that we're getting the whole gospel here. So the beginning of chapter 4, after Jesus is baptized, he or John the Baptist hears the declaration, that this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. And chapter 4 begins in Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for, by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for as it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly came, and, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. So this is... Like I said, kind of, kind of move quickly past this because it's not, on the one hand, it's, it's a part of Jesus' story, um, and it's a part of his story. It is a part of the beginning of his ministry, but it's one that's certainly um, placed in there more as a, a narrative event than him interacting and teaching with, with other people, right? So this is Jesus by himself here. What are the three temptations that we have in chapter 4? Food. Food. Okay, good. And uh, power. Power. And what else? You named one and three. Yeah, the ability to do unusual things. Um, yeah, and so you could, you could look at that two ways. There's the unusual nature of being able to be thrown off, but really this uh, divine protection or a testing of the divine protection 
and what that testing detection and what that testing there is um, is ultimately there's a couple ways you could read into that. There's a bit of pride there, um, or esteem, you could say, because what's the what's the promise that's been made in Scripture that the devil references? That the angels would come and protect you. Right. You you won't even dash your foot against the stone. Um, so this idea of testing God, or along with that, um, testing who you know yourself to be in relationship to God. That's the one that's kind of the most um, most varied and, and almost most muddled because it could mean a couple different things, but it's really this idea of testing or challenging the relationship with God um, that you have or that, or that you know or think you have Jesus. Um, and Jesus doesn't do it. Why? What's his response to the devil there? Put us to the test. You will not do not put the Lord to the test, right? So, so these, but in that same respect, these first two both deal with his physical well-being. The third one, that power, um, what is that? What is that a temptation for? Or what else could you say it's for? To elaborate on what's the test, what is the temptation of power? For an earthly kingdom. Or the earthly kingdom, right? So the the devil is tempting him with bodily needs. So bodily sustenance in the first one, which is important, bodily protection in the second one, and then overall earthly, earthly power. Jesus is able to able to set aside all three of these temptations, even in spite of the fact he's out in the wilderness. So to, to kind of wrap this up, and then we'll jump back into where Jesus is in his teaching, what does this tell us as the hearers about Jesus? He can resist all of that. I mean, he has, he has the strength to do that. Okay, so he's, he's strong. Right, and strong in faith, I think, is certainly uh, something that we learn there. Good. What's something else? That he What's that? We learned that he could be tested. Okay, so we do learn just as a um, just as an informational point and an important one about who Jesus is, that he is not superhuman, right? Because of his very temptation, he is truly. He is truly human and he can be tested by these things. So I think that's another important thing. Good. Can be tested. What's, what else do we learn? He's able to make, well, he's able to make Satan go away, although not, not fully, right? In, in, in the sense that Satan departs from him. And I don't think it's here in Matthew, but I, it might be the Luke version. Satan departed him until an opportune time. Right? So it's, right. 
He's, he's not defeating Satan here. He, he withstands the temptation. But, okay, so let me, let me think about it this way. You are hearing the story of Matthew. You've been introduced to the person of Jesus. You know that this is a story about a Messiah, a miracle worker. Um, what might be a bad assumption that you have about someone in that position? What might be their motivation? To try and earn favor? Sure, that's one way to put it, absolutely. Earn favor, earn power, earn wealth. Right? There's still a lot of people out there selling God today. That would have been no different in the year zero. And some people do it for their own benefit. What we get in this story from Matthew, which is kind of purposefully a story that is not about Jesus rejecting the bad in order to be honored by others. Remember, because no, one, no one's there for this event, right? We learn the true nature of Jesus is not one that's motivated by greed and self-interest. He already could have had that. He could have had everything he needs to live. He could have had the protection of God. He could have had earthly power. These are, there's probably some sort of trick, because with the devil there's always a trick, but they could have been given him right there if he would have chosen a different path. He doesn't do that. And if he doesn't do that there, we can hear that his motivation is pure, and we can hear that, what about these three things that did not lead to him worshiping and bowing down to Satan? They're not that important. They're not important. I think the better, I think they're not important or they're not the most important to him. And in fact, all three of these things will be things that Jesus sacrifices. He said, so again, sort of like when the Magi come with their gifts, it's this building upon, Matthew's pointing us, like all the gospel writers are pointing us towards the cross eventually. So Jesus could have had all these things, but he's not motivated by these things because of his strength in the faith. And so at this point in his temptation, he can forego the physical security, the physical needs, and he can forego the power that he could otherwise have. And he's going to continue to do that once he gets to the conclusion at the cross. Okay, I have a question. Yeah. Last verse, 11. Yeah. Uh, then the devil left him. Okay, that's fine. And angels came and attended him. Uh, now, does that tell us that, that Jesus often associated with angels? We know he associated with the prophets. Well, what, what do you mean by associated? Well, I mean, the angels came and attended him. He's out by himself. Yeah. So when he needed support or an attaboy statement or something like that, right. the angels came and let him know that he had made the right choice. I think that's that's one way you can look at it. Um, there's a confirmation from God there. So who who are angels, right? Angels are servants of God. Mm -hmm. um, lesser in the order of creation than human beings. We're going to point that out. They are, they are servants of God. 
and God in the in the Old Testament especially um, routinely sends angels. Um, so you're right. It, I, I like that interpretation, Mary. This could be a confirmation that he's he's done well, um, but also just an additional sort of emphasis that God is God is there with him. God and the angels were watching. God and the angels were watching, right? He was not he was not abandoned in the wilderness. In fact, why did he go to the wilderness? For that he went purpose. To no, he didn't go to pray. How does he wind up in the wilderness? I thought he went intentionally for them. The spirit led him up to be tempted by the devil. Yeah. I mean, that was the purpose for going there. But it's but it's not choice, which is interesting. That Jesus isn't Jesus doesn't kind of decide like oh I've been baptized it's it's time to go in the wilderness. Right. It said that. Well, the spirit led him. Yeah, so. he's he's kind of pulled out there by the spirit for this time of testing. So you've really got all three parts of the Godhead: the spirit's leading him, and God the Father and the angels are watching. You've got all three parts of the Godhead, and and you have again this so connecting Old and New Testament through Christ, because of course, how long is he going to be in the wilderness? Forty days. Forty days. There's that. There's the forty, right? Who else was in the wilderness for 40? Israelites. Israelites, 40 years in the wilderness. How did they do with temptation? Not well. Not, not well, right? Um, more like us. Yeah, more like us. So you have that comparison that's that's right there, right, that tie back to the Old Testament scriptures. You also then have this, um, this Jesus who is being unwillingly sent out there to be tested Okay, so you've been you've been forced out into the wilderness by God, by the Spirit of God. When you're there, you are hungry, you're hot, you're tired, you're thirsty, right? You have the sense of being abandoned. And that sense of being abandoned by God is shattering to people's faith. Tie this in then to the overall, again, so the temptation and the cross are then closely linked. When he's going through in, into the final Passover, his being handed over, his, his passion, and then his crucifixion, you have a very similar, these are events by God's ordaining that are outside of his control that he willingly participates in. There's that one line, um, we say it, I'm sure it's from scripture, but I can't, I can't think of where right now, but we say it currently, or no, we say it most Sundays during the, during the preparation for communion and the prayer. He was obedient to your will, even to the point of death. Right. Right. So this is an example in the, in the wilderness of that obedience. And it, and it closely sort of mirrors that later obedience that he will show when things are again out of his control. And so if you think about the book ending here, of the story of, of Jesus, we're going to move from things being outside of his control and being a time of suffering and sacrifice into a time when most things are going to be of Jesus' own doing for, for the moment. His teaching is his miracle. I mean, it's, it's God, but it's, he's going to be more the active participant. And then we're going to fall back into that same pattern that we started with here in the wilderness, 
He's going to be a passive participant. He's going to be suffering and he's going to be sacrificing. So as the start of Jesus' ministry, right after his baptism, it aligns cl closely with the end of his ministry at the crucifixion. All right, so let's let's jump forward. We, we've done five, or, or most, most of five, so we'll jump to six here, chapter six in Matthew. Can someone read six, uh, one to four? Good, and we will, so there's a, there's a bunch of sort of chopped up readings here, or chopped up teachings, and we're just going to take some of these one by one. Um, the explanation here, why do people give alms, give money to the poor in Jesus' time? Well, I was going to say, now they get a tax benefit. <laughs> well, you get your tax right <laughs> off, right? Why else? Why else is, so what is Jesus critiquing here about what's going on your, in his time? Your motivation for why you're giving it. And what's, what's the motivation? To show off, basically. Yeah. And receive praise from other people. And to get something back for it. Right. So this is, and I, I know we've talked about this in church before, but first century, um, what they called honor shame culture was kind of part of the operating economy um, of the day. And that's both money economy and economy as a word that talks about how, how the society operates. So think about it now, if we want to translate, the only way I can think of is like your credit score. Um, that's, that's a good way. Yeah. Right. Or just the way that society just understands you and your position and value in society. So it can actually rise or fall. And, and there's going to be parts. I think we, we talked about this in a sermon a couple months ago when Jesus, um, talks about like the seating at the banquet and all that sort of stuff. Right. Right. Everyone would have known their seats and their positions of honor. And these would have been important things in, in that society kind of knowing where you stood. Well, when you give alms and, and, and fast, and when you live righteously before the world, you actually get something good in return. So what's the correction Jesus makes here? No, you don't let anybody know that, so you can't get honor from them. Don't let anyone know. Don't let anyone know. That's a... That's always been a challenge for for people to do. People do it where they are generous in secret. This is one of those parts too where, and I don't know that we have the right answer to this, sometimes when we read Jesus and his teachings, trying to find the line between hyperbole or exaggeration and literal instruction can be difficult. So, on the one hand, you could read this and say, if you're reading this just flat out as, as a true-to-form literal statement, that Jesus is telling you what? What's your instruction from Jesus here? Be anonymous in your giving. Always, right? Right. Always. If you read it with more of a lens towards um, hyperbole, Maybe what is Jesus instructing here? So what's what's the in, what would be the in between? Just be quiet about it. Be quiet about it. Um, 
I think don't let it be your motivation, maybe. Could also be a, a way of reconciling this. Or Jesus could very much mean, you know, all generosity needs to be done in secret, and that, that could be true. Um, but if the, if the culture of the day back then was it's only being done by so many of these people just so they get honor, and then Jesus kind of, he does the 180 on it, right? I mean, the full 180 degree flip. Nope, it should be all done in secret. I think there is a way you can read it and say, all right, he's making this exaggerated point that when you give, if your motivation is to be honored for it, it's, it's coming from the wrong place. But if people happen to find out about it, so long as your motivation is really just to give alms and to, and to provide for others, then maybe it's, maybe it's okay. But I don't know that. See, some of these, some of these things that Jesus says are not always clearly defined. And so you'll have varied interpretations, which is often where I like to fall on a lot of these things is the, is the question mark. I know some people don't like that, but sometimes it just, it, there's multiple ways to, to understand these things. All right, this will be familiar. Can someone do five through 15? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because, because they don't really have that I think that's a good good point, Sylvia, because they don't really have that middle ground of his his comparison, his antagonist here in the teaching is the people, they're not, they are bragging about it. They're making a big show of it. Right? They they have the trumpets sounding when they're giving their <laughs> giving their alms. I mean, it's pretty over the top, so that everyone will see it. And so I think by making that full swing to, no, in fact, don't let anyone ever know. I think it's it's really an emphasis on this is about not bragging about it, like Sylvia, like you just said. All right, let's jump to 5 through 14, 5 through 15, excuse me. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask of him. <clears throat> this, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. All right, so we establish here what we have come to know as the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. The first part here, Jesus starts out relatively similar to his instruction on almsgiving. Um, it's going to be ins his instruction, just jumping really 
quickly forward to fasting. So these three are linked in the way that Jesus is describing them. Let me see if I think it's these three. Yeah, so almsgiving. Don't blow the trumpet when you give your alms. Prayer. Don't stand out in the street corner and don't use a whole bunch of words so that you'll be seen praying, because that's not the point. With the almsgiving, he says, this is the way they do it. How are you to do it? Theirs is very public. Privately. You do yours privately. With the prayer, this is how they do it very publicly. You're going to pray how? Privately. So just, just fast forwarding before we talk about the Lord's Prayer concerning fasting. We haven't read through this yet, but I bet we can guess. Fasting, how do people fast? In public. In public, right? They disfigure their faces, he talks about. They make a big show of it. When you fast, you could look forward, but does anyone remember what Jesus says to do with fasting? Put a smile on your face. Ba yeah, basically. Anoint your head with oil, go out, look healthy and happy before everyone, and don't let them know that you're starving inside. So all three of these, the almsgiving, the prayer, and the fasting, these ways of, of honoring God that are all three linked together all have the same thing. Everyone else is doing this publicly so that they can be seen. Nope. You do it in private instead. So for all of those, again, we have this same question that pops up. All right, well, should we get together and pray together? Should we, if we do participate in some sort of fasting or, or repentance activity, should, should that be something we do together as a church or should it be something that we just all do on our own? So if you just take the strict, um, if you just take the strict kind of, well, Jesus said this, then you got to do it all by yourself. If you think about it more as don't do it to be publicly seen so that you'll be honored, then that opens up the, the community. And, and I think we can get to that because Jesus prays with his disciples. That's something that, that's something that Jesus prays privately too, but he, he mm -hmm. participates in this with his disciples as well. And he tells us to get, to meet together, to, right. to yeah. pray. Yeah, pray and heal. So, so it's, I don't think it's, I think it's this hyperbole of, they're all doing this publicly to be seen, whatever it is. They're fasting, they're almsgiving, they're praying. Right. It's just for them right it's now. It's all for show. It's all for show, right? Don't be like them is the, is the lesson. Don't be like them. Don't just make your piety a show for others so that they think good things about you. It's always been interesting. So in the end of this month is Ash Wednesday, and we will come to church, many of us, and we will get the sign of the cross painted on our head with ashes. And what's the gospel reading? This. Um, don't show your piety before others. And it's always like, well, how do you reconcile that? Well, if you're just going to get ashes on your head so that everyone sees what a good Christian you are, you're doing it wrong. If you're doing it as a form of sacrifice and humiliation and, and repentance, then it's different. Right? So that's where it's, it's reading Jesus, not as saying, do all this God stuff privately. It's just don't do it for your own benefit. Let's talk about the Lord's Prayer because it, it is our prayer that we say at least weekly, if not a lot of people have this as a daily devotion. So, what's the first part of the Lord's Prayer? That's in praise of God. Good. We can call that praise or, or description of God. 
So God is described, and how is God described? Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven and Holy. Holy, hallowed be your name. So these are our two descriptions of naming God at the beginning of a prayer. The Lord's Prayer, Jewish prayers preceding it, and Christian prayers often have this kind of, they're, they're formulaic in the sense that they, they do this often. You have a naming invocation of God, you say something about God, you make your prayer, and then you say something else about God. It's kind of this threefold, our prayers of the day, our, our prayers that we say are, are often structured in this way. The Lord's Prayer is no different. So God is in heaven, and God's name is holy. Good. What does it move into then? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so the kingdom, the first prayer, the first ask of God is for God's kingdom to come to earth and for God's will to be done. All right, so thinking about this, Thinking about this, what, what is this really asking of God? This is an ask. It's a petition. What is the request? Uh, to leave heaven and come be with us. Maybe. To, I mean, there's, there's, an, yeah, your, at least in the form of your kingdom, what, your reign, um, whatever that's going to be. What's similar here about kingdom and will? Generally speaking. Well, in his kingdom, he will, he rules. That's, so. that's the word I was looking for. So what's the first petition from Jesus here is basically what? Rule. Rule. Come take over everything because who does the kingdom belong to now belongs to a bunch of sinners so it's either the it belongs to it belongs to the sinners belongs to people and that's not perfect or good i think especially in jesus time and, and at various points you would have also and in scripture at various places, you hear about sort of the, the dominion or rule of, of the devil, of Satan. And I know that sometimes we shy away from that because, you know, the image of the cartoonish Satan sometimes leads us to move away from talk of, of Satan or, or an evil force. Um, I, I think just personally, a lot of people sort of feel like, well, you know, I don't believe in the the red dragon guy with the pitchfork and the horns. And if, if that sort of starts to get broken down, then it can lead to kind of shying away from talk about, you know, the ruler of this world being a corrupt ruler. If you think about it more in terms of the opposing force or, or even the animated opposing personified force of God, 
So this, this opposition to God, that's what rules the world. And what Jesus is, is telling us to pray for in the first invocation here is just to move that for God to take over, like you said, Mary, just rule. And that has to, that has to dispose the, the prior occupant of that seat, like the kingdom of opposition to God, the kingdom of the devil. Um, Sometimes referring to it Rome. What's that? Sometimes referred to as Rome at that time. Rome, yeah, Rome stands in place sometimes, but I think that they there there was a very developed understanding that was not the cartoon Satan of the devil at work in the world and Satan at work in, in the time of Jesus. Um, I mean, who does Jesus? Who was Jesus just out in the wilderness with? The devil. Satan, right? I mean, this is this is the opposing force of God. This is the one that's trying to break down even further and further that relationship between um, between humans and God through through the introduction of evil and temptation. That's who has a grip on the world. And so the first petition is, come rule and bring your will with you. Right. So in that sense, it is... It's, it's self-serving, I guess you could say, or self-interested in the idea, if you place it under the idea that God's rule is good for people. Um, but it's also a very selfless prayer in that we're willing to give up that, that freedom to sin if the kingdom comes, which people cling to. So it's, it's a selfless petition. All right, what's next? Then it prays for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Good. What do we make of that? What was that, Sylvia? Provide for us our needs, our actual bread, whatever it is. It's interesting that they that the ask is for the daily bread. Daily. Right. One of the things we start to find in the teaching of Jesus, and th this will become more apparent as, as we go through the gospel. Jesus is leading a movement of disciples that is, that is meant to be concerned with today. Um, and we, I know this came up, especially when we were going through Luke this summer, but the idea of really being concerned about tomorrow or storing too much away was seen by Jesus and, in, and throughout parts of the Christian movement as being sort of a rejection of God's providence and, and a rejection of trusting God for tomorrow. So the prayer is just as simple as, Give me what I need today in this moment, but not necessarily more than I need either. And certainly, I think out of, out of all the parts of the Lord's Prayer and all the parts of Jesus' teaching, this is one of the ones that, I mean, I struggle with this. I think we all do because we're, because we're smart and we're commonsensical and that's part of us too. And we realize that that's a tough way to live. Um, and yet, in, a, in the state of nature, that's how most creatures live. 
Um, and if you trust in God, sort of the ultimate trust of that would just be to wake up each day and know and believe God will provide for you that day and then move into the next. But that's, it's, a, it's a tough thing for us to really participate in. Um, but certainly for Jesus, that's, that's his prayer for his disciples is just for this day, for this day, God provide us with what we need. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? All right, we'll keep moving on then. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Go ahead. You look like you have a thought. Well, just I I remember as a kid being told that means what you're saying is, you know, forgive me as I forgive others. So if I don't forgive others, I'm asking to be forgiven in that same way, i.e. not forgiven very well. Yeah. So. Well, and jump down here to, to verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Right. Um, and that's tough even as an adult. Because we can say we forgive, and we can even think that we forgive, but if you've still got bitterness or you know, negative feelings or thought, even just negative thoughts in your mind. And oh, Mary, you haven't. Oh, Mary, <laughs> you have launched into one of my favorite questions in trying to understand the faith. What is forgiveness? So what's your definition, Mary? To me, if you truly forgive, it's gone out of your mind and your heart. Okay, so gone to the point of no thought. No no ill will. All right, so we can say no ill will. Right. What about remembering what's happened? Ideally not. Ideally not, okay. Anyone else have a definition of forgiveness? Ooh, say more about that. What'd she say? Wiping the slate clean. Ah. Uh, say more about that, Sylvia. What What are you removing? Okay. So thoughts, anger's got to go. How about someone else? Well, give me one more reflection on forgiveness. The desire for revenge. Desire for revenge. I get back at you one of these days. <laughs> I may act like I forgave you, revenge. but <laughs> okay. Revenge. So, one of the one of the more interesting elective classes I had in seminary was on forgiveness, and I will tell you. We went through a full semester of a three-hour credit class, and it was taught by two professor pastors and had a group of final year seminarians, and we never really got to a good conclusion to answer this question. 
what is forgiveness? Because we come with all of these different ideas stored therein. And you know what I think on the the um, forgetting, like the thought part of it? Yeah. There's a little fear sometimes that you think, or I think, I'll speak for myself, that if I forget how this happened, uh-huh. I might let it happen again. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I need to remember this so that the part of it that I can control, my, my part, I know I yes. can't control the other person, but the part that I can control, I can control so this doesn't happen again. Right. So that's pride. That's all kinds of stuff in there. It is. Fear. What, what word does Jesus use? So he uses two words to talk about the same thing here. What are the two words we find? Translated. So in the prayer, what does it say? Well, you forgive our debts. Okay, so debts and we have debts and debtors. Good. What else? Trust the actual trespasses. Okay, so then we find the language in the explanation about trespasses and trespassers. Good. And there's one more that comes from Luke's version. Does anyone remember the, the word Luke uses? I think it's Luke. Sins. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. All right. So, this, this is where, again, thinking about the culture in which Jesus is teaching can help us to maybe get a better understanding of what he's talking about, especially with the, the language of debt debtors, right? So, does anyone remember, what was that, what's that term I used for the, the cultural understanding? The honor-shame culture. Honor-shame. Honor-shame culture. Okay. So, and remember, your honor-shame sort of value is a personal interaction thing. So I like you, I don't like you. It is an honorific sort of thing. You're better than me, and I know that you, you rank higher in society. And a monetary thing, potentially, too. You've harmed me, or I owe you money, or something like that. So, the honor-shame culture and the idea of... Ooh, let's make a spell that. Right? Yeah. Debt? Debt? D-B-T. You have an I in there. That's debit. That's, that's debit. <laughs> Spelling is never been my strong suit. Um, so now we think about debts and, and think about them in terms of law. Okay? So when we were going through the Old Testament, if I did something bad to you, how did the law resolve it? So, you were given some kind of, um, not reward, but some kind restitution. of restitution. 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 So restitution. And you did that in order to restore a relationship and, and become even, right? Right. Maybe Jesus is saying, 
So this is forgiveness of debts. That when something like that happens and the law says, you killed my donkey, so you owe me a donkey. Maybe that's what I have to forgive. Re an actual reconciling of monetary debts. Some have said that maybe this is also tied into actual financial stuff. Mary, you owe me money and you can't pay me back. I better, I better forgive it because I owe debt to God. So then we're introducing this other. So there's the debts of the law. There's the debts of monetary economy. And there's just the slights that need to be um, reconciled. So again, we still have this a little bit. But the funny thing about honor shame is that it, it lasted a very long time, right? Think about like the duels of the founding fathers and things like that. Right. Right. You've slighted me. I need to defend my honor and I need to seek justice from you. It's a debt. It's a debt of a different kind. So there's the, there's the recompense monetary debt. There's honor debts. Um, there are otherwise just things that I would owe you because you shamed me or that you would owe me because you shamed me in light of sight. Now you're indebted to me. Um, again, sort of interpersonally and potentially economically. So these are all real things. Let's think about this then in relationship to the understanding of God and humanity. Because what is what does Matthew say? Forgive your debts as, or forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debt with us. So what are our debts to God? Um, well, it's life. Well, I hope it's not your whole life, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> well, pray we owe it praise for our life. Well, that's praise, but what, what, when are you accumulating debt with God? When you don't do what you're supposed to do. Which in relationship to God, so what's the word Luke uses? Sin. 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 So we have sin debt before God. Not a new concept for them. How do you get rid of sin debt before God? What do you do when you sin? Make a sacrifice. You gotta make a sacrifice. Or you gotta do something, you gotta give alms, you gotta do something. So we have debts before God. Maybe as Jesus has started introducing his teachings, right, when we talked about like the adultery and divorce stuff, maybe some of these fullness of the law things we can't keep. So uh-oh, our debt with God is probably a lot higher than we realized. Certainly as a world, but also just as individuals. So, but the interesting thing is about honor, shame, and, and, and thinking about it as a debt collection or a debt forgiveness, I think that's a good way in this legalized sense to think about it. What is the fullness of forgiving a debt? Not remembering it. Is it? Mary, if you owe me $100 and I say, don't worry about it, have I forgiven your debt? No. Really? No, you have on that. <laughs> With money, you have. I mean, that's a tangible thing. You're saying, forget it. You right. don't owe it. So. so if you, Mary Boroff, do something against me that 
society or even the law says, I need to extract something from you to be made whole. Right. You're indebted to me at that moment. Right. If I say, keep your ox, or if I say, I don't need your hand cut off because you stole my jug of water. Right. Have I satisfied the debt between us? Have I forgiven you your debt? Yes. Okay. Can I still remember that that happened? Yes. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. The bank can forgive your debt, and they don't do this, but in theory they could. Right. They might not loan to you again, but they could, they could forgive it. So I think, I think here in this prayer, we have expanded it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Our expansion of forgiveness. In, in the understanding of what Jesus is calling us to do here, and maybe what God does for us, I don't think it necessarily means you have to forget it to be fully forgiven with someone. Now, that can depend on the type of the type of relationship that we have with someone, because a relationship could be wrecked by a previous action, and that relationship might fundamentally have to change. But it doesn't mean that you still feel like that person owes you anything. It doesn't mean you haven't gone far enough with forgiveness. Um, so the, to kind of bring it back in this, in this, uh, the idea that you must forgive in order to be forgiven is very important to the Anabaptists, the Amish. And so the one professor teaching our class was a, a study on uh, Amish theology. He was a, he was a teacher of Amish theology and, professor of it, and we looked at the incident around the shooting at Nickel Mines. You might not remember this because if you're close to the area, it was kind of unforgettable, but there was this lone gunman that came into the Amish school and shot a bunch of kids. This was 2000s at some point. And um, the, the representatives of the Amish community went to the family of the man that night and told them that they forgive them. So what were they saying to them? Well, the family must have, the, the guilt must have been in part the family for not instructing the person properly. Yeah, it can relieve them of a little bit of guilt. Um, and but think about the world as a much, as cruel as it can be. If, if you or your family member just murdered my family member, and I come to you and tell you I forgive you. You're not gonna press charges, I guess. Well, maybe, maybe you would let go of the legal thing. That could be, that could be part of it. And the Amish are not, I, I, I would agree. They don't necessarily press charges or anything like that. What else are you kind of just saying to them? What's the R word? Redemption? Revenge. Oh. 
it seems almost like we would just assume this, but in a, in a way, they're also saying, we're not going to come to you and extract blood for blood. Uh-huh. Right? Right. That seems like a low bar, but if you think about the way that people are, that's a pretty liberating and relief-filled thing to know from someone else. Really? So there is all the guilt thing, and, and again, we have added the idea of, well, you know, you have to fully forget. To fully forgive means to not remember and all these things. And that's, those are good practices if we can do them, and it's true. But maybe what, in, in light of the time, what more is being said here is we're all accumulating these debts with each other. And to forgive that revenge retribution so that they don't have to worry about it is how we want our relationship to be with God, too, because we've racked up all these debts doesn't mean that God has to like it or forget about it or anything like that. We want to ascribe that to God, but we sort of ascribe that to ourselves. It just means that past action that has caused you to be indebted to me, I'm going to forgive. Which means I'm not going to... Jesus already talked about the eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. Right. Right? That's, you can't go by that system. It doesn't work. The forgiveness pushes that to the side. You know what? You knocked out my tooth. I'm not going to come knock out your tooth. I don't have to like you, <laughs> right? right. I, don't have, I don't have to forget what you did, but you can rest assured knowing that I've forgiven you and I'm not going to do it. Why? Because I want God to forgive me for all the ways that I have failed to live up to God's expectation, all the debt I have with God. It's, it's hard for us living outside the honor-shame culture to always wrap our minds around some of these things, but that's, you almost think about it like monetary debt. I think it helps. The other parts of forgiveness are good too, but... There's a reason Jesus uses this word that sometimes sounds to us strange about debts and debtors. And it's this idea of owing based on fault to another. All right. Let's see what time it is. All right. Let's try to finish up here. And do not bring us to the time of trial and rescue us from the evil one. What do we make of that? Time of trial and evil one. Is time of trial, is that King James or which version uses that? I mean, this is, I have NRSV. What do you have? I have RSV. What do you, what's yours say? Just lead us not to temptation. Okay. But I'm familiar with the time of trial. Right. Time, Um, Time of trial is, is what the more modern um, translations tend to use, a little closer to the Greek. They're both interchangeable. Um, That's why I was curious, because time of trial sounds like older language. So now, what's... This is a really interesting way for Jesus to, to conclude the prayer that we should say. All right. What did we start out today's Bible study with? What passage? Talk about temptation, his temptation. His chapter four. What happens? What happens in chapter the start of chapter four with Jesus? He's being tempted. Temptation, time, time of trial, and who's he being tempted by? The evil one. The evil one, the devil. Um. So this this final part of the Lord's prayer 
again is stitched in with Jesus' own experience that has happened and Jesus' experience that is to come. So Jesus is going to, to repeat this, right? When is Jesus going to, to repeat this for himself? In the Garden of Gethsemane. In Gethsemane. What's his prayer in Gethsemane? Take this from me. Yeah. Impossible. Yeah. yeah. Lead, lead us not into temptation, or lead us not into this time of trial and, and protect us from, from the evil one. Right, so these are, these are realities for Jesus, and they are potentially realities for who else? All of us. All of us, and specific to who Jesus is teaching here, disciples. So we have that turn in the Beatitudes. You have the first eight of them, which are sort of more generic proverbs about these groups of people. And then the final one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and you, when you are persecuted on account of my name, right? So then he starts to turn it a little bit more facing the disciples. So he he knows that this is not good, and it is sort of the fate of, not the fate, that's not the right word, but the experience potentially of of those who follow in his own way. It's going to be his experience and the experience for his disciples. Why pray not to go through it then? Well, I... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. We, 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 are, we are fallible. We might, we might just fail. That's, that's an absolute reason to, to not want to go through this. Um, what's the other... Why for Jesus would he make his petition in the garden and offer this part of his prayer, do you think? This isn't like a known, this is just speculating. Maybe he isn't assured that he is the son of God on earth until he goes through it. Uh, I think he's pretty well established. He saw the dove. Yeah. He saw the angels wait on him. But he's also human. He's God and human. And and what is this? It's really hard. It's a, yeah, it's a prayer <laughs> I, for help. Yeah, I don't think this is a... I'm not, I'm not trying to ask a trick or leading question here. This is just... This hard stuff. Right. Painful. Painful. Agonizing. And if God can spare you from it, by all means, pray for God to spare you from it. Even Jesus himself in the garden, right, offers that same petition. Lord, if this is your will, you know, I'll drink the cup. But if if there's any other way, please, 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 please don't make me do this. Feel free. Feel free, God. Yes. So for us, Jesus is, I think it, I think it helps for disciples then and us now to understand that these times of temptation and trial will be as challenging as they seem. And that might seem obvious, but we can be around the presence of God and feel the presence of God, and they can be around Jesus, and they can get lulled into this sense of security by it. to the point that 
if these, if and when these things do happen, you'll feel like God isn't with you. Maybe. And so Jesus, who has already experienced this once, will experience it again. And he's adding on for his disciples here. You can pray that God will, will spare you from this. You will, you can, you can and should pray that God will so spare you from evil. it's okay to do that. That's it's okay to do that. Okay. Yes. This is not sinful to not want to do this. This is not sinful to, sinful to ask God for another way. But ultimately, how do we begin the Lord's Prayer? Not with naming God, but what's our first petition? Your will be done. Your will be done. And so Jesus' prayer in the garden mirrors those two parts of this prayer. Right? The stuff about daily bread and, and the trespasses are, are left out of that one. He kind of goes from your will be done but please don't let this be your will. And that's an okay conversation to have with God. Because even Jesus does. All right. That's as far as we'll get today. That's all right. We'll have a couple extra sessions in the Sunday group because we, uh, we won't take off any Sundays. But let's end with the prayer that Jesus teaches us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thanks for joining us, computer crew. Bye. Bye. Thank you.